It was the largest wrongful conviction verdict in American history, a case of egregious civil rights abuse. Two black teenagers spent decades on death row for a crime they didn't commit after being forced to confess by police officers. And they couldn't keep it hid. What they had done to us, they couldn't keep it hid. It was going to come out eventually. We'll follow a group of trial lawyers trying to right the wrongs of the past and witness the bravery of two brothers fighting for the truth. What still would matter the most to Henry and Leon is having a jury come in and say, we believe you, we believe that your confession was false. I'm Kate Stetson, and this is Proof in Trial, Episode 3, Gilliam and Tarleton versus Robeson County et al. This case begins with an 11-year-old girl from Red Springs, North Carolina. She had a bright smile and colored beads in her hair. Her name was Sabrina Bowie. On a late summer's day in 1983, Sabrina left home at about three in the afternoon, telling her father she was going to take a bicycle back to a friend at a nearby arcade. Her father never saw her alive again. Sabrina's body was found two days later in a soybean field just off Main Street. She'd been raped and murdered, a crime that shocked the whole community. The voice you're about to hear is David Maxwell, an associate at Hogan Levels. And as you would expect with something like this, there was a lot of pressure on law enforcement to solve the case and to solve it quickly. The Red Springs Police Department called in help from the Robeson County Sheriff's Office and the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation. A few days after Sabrina's body was found, a girl at the local high school told police a lie. She'd heard a rumor that a boy named Henry McCullum was involved in the murder. Based on that made-up rumor, the police picked Henry up and took him into the station. Henry was just 19. He had intellectual disabilities. But the police questioned him late into the night and without a lawyer. Henry told them over and over that he knew nothing about the murder of Sabrina Bowie. But they refused to take no for an answer and continued questioning him, suggesting they had a witness who could place him at the crime scene. They started yelling at him. They were using racial slurs, banging their hands on the table, ultimately threatening Henry with the gas chamber if he didn't tell them what they wanted to hear. Eventually, Henry breaks down. He's 19 years old. He has significant intellectual disabilities. And he just breaks and starts telling law enforcement what they want to hear. The officers told Henry the only way out for him would be to confess, and that if he confessed, he could go home. So Henry signed a confession that implicated him and his 15-year-old brother, Leon, who was also intellectually disabled. His little brother, Leon, had been waiting outside with their mother, who was pleading with the officers to see Henry. Police, instead, threatened to arrest her. And when she stepped outside for a minute, officers took Leon into an interrogation room alone. They sit him down with police officers who start interrogating him in, in a similar way that they interrogated Henry, accusing him of being involved, telling him to tell the truth about it, pressuring him, yelling, using racial slurs, 
threatening him with the gas chamber, Leon actually believed that they could kill him, you know, right then. And so started telling them what they wanted to hear. The officers coerced confessions from both teenage boys. There were huge and obvious inconsistencies between Henry and Leon's statements. But after the officers coerced those false confessions, Henry and Leon were found guilty of rape and murder. At just 15 and 19 years old, they were sentenced to death. Leon was the youngest person ever to be sent to death row in North Carolina. The jury that convicted Leon and Henry probably thought they had done their job, that this unspeakable crime would not go unpunished. But there was something they didn't know. You're about to hear a really important piece of this case, but just a warning. It's pretty graphic. About four weeks after Sabrina Bowie was raped and murdered, another young woman was raped and murdered in Red Springs in a remarkably similar fashion. Like Sabrina Bowie, she was asphyxiated, she was raped, she was left near a wooded area, and she was found um, nude from the waist down with her shirt pushed above her head, just as Sabrina Bowie was found. The perpetrator was a man named Roscoe Artis. He was known to police as a serial violent rapist. Roscoe Artis was arrested and confessed to the crime, but there was something else as well. Roscoe Artis lived right next to the field where Sabrina Bowie's body had been discovered. It wasn't until decades after Sabrina Bowie's death that new DNA evidence confirmed what many had suspected. Henry and Leon had nothing to do with Sabrina's murder. The DNA evidence instead linked Roscoe Artis, the rapist who lived near where her body had been found, to her murder. Henry and Leon spent 31 years in prison for a crime they didn't commit. After an investigation by the North Carolina Innocence Inquiry Commission, Henry and Leon were back in court. So they were exonerated in 2014, and a year later, the governor of North Carolina granted them pardons of actual innocence. And shortly after that, this civil rights case was filed. Uh, it was filed against the law enforcement officials involved in this investigation, and it alleged that they repeatedly violated Henry and Leon's constitutional rights, including by coercing these false confessions that were the basis for their convictions. I should tell you that this was a case that I'm also personally familiar with. In 2018, an old Hogan Lovells colleague called and asked if we might consider taking on this case. Henry and Leon's original lawyer, who has since been disbarred in North Carolina, was taking advantage of them. Both of the brothers had been appointed guardians to help them make decisions because of their intellectual disabilities. They needed help with the case. When our team at Hogan Lovells first heard about the case, we didn't hesitate. We went all in. Here's partner Des Hogan, the global head of our litigation, arbitration, and employment practice. We took this case on on a pro bono basis because we as a firm and the individual lawyers who heard about it felt compelled to do so. It's a case about injustice, it's about civil rights abuses, and the power that police have over the lives of two black teenagers 40 years ago who were intellectually disabled. 
When I got involved, the case was on appeal to determine if it would even get to trial. This was a critical stage because, as often happens in cases like these, the police officers involved argued that they were entitled to qualified immunity, which basically would insulate them from any responsibility for their actions. And so I went to the Court of Appeals with a team of Hogan Lovell's lawyers to argue that the officers' actions were so egregious that they were not entitled to qualified immunity. The appeal that Kate handled, along with several other members of our team, was about qualified immunity, getting over that hurdle. It was a, a big obstacle right at the outset of the case, but you know, Kate and the rest of the team just did an excellent job getting us through that and getting us an opportunity to try the case. After we won that appeal and were able to go to trial, Des Hogan, David Maxwell, and another associate, Liz Lockwood, flew down to Raleigh, rented a car, and drove into rural Virginia, where Henry had moved after he was released from prison. It was the summer of 2018, and Henry was living with his new fiance and her two kids. I'll let Liz pick up the story. Henry opens the door for us, welcomes us into um, his home that he was very proud of. He was proud to be uh, there with his fiance. He was proud to have a, a home to welcome us into. And we spent about four hours in the breakfast room right next to his kitchen. And we sat there and he relived in those uh, four hours the terrible night that he spent where he was coerced to confess to a crime he didn't commit. It was incredibly emotional. And then he painted in really grim detail what his 31 years in prison, most of them on death row, were like. And it was incredibly powerful. It made me and made David, made Liz, and everybody on our team all the more committed to seeing this injustice righted. The case would be heard by U.S. District Judge Terrence Boyle, a longtime trial judge with a reputation for exacting standards in his courtroom. Des, David, and Liz, alongside our co-counsel Elliot Abrams of Cheshire Parker Schneider in Raleigh, worked hard to streamline their case and came up with a crisp presentation. The lawyers had a powerful story to tell about Henry and Leon. There was never any forensic evidence that connected them to this crime. There were never any eyewitnesses who placed them at the scene of the crime. They were convicted, arrested, and then convicted solely on the basis of these false confessions. Uh, and then there was some testimony that law enforcement got false testimony from a jailhouse snitch as well. In the courtroom, the trial team had to prove to a jury that Henry and Leon deserved compensation for the decades they had spent on death row. One set of defendants from the Red Springs Police Department had already settled out of the case. So when we got involved, the remaining defendants two, were two law enforcement officers with the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation, the SBI, and two law enforcement officers with the Robeson County uh, Sheriff's Office. And so those were the four individuals that had been really heavily involved in Henry and Leon's interrogation. At trial, in their opening statement, the defense laid out their argument that Henry and Leon deserved to spend all that time in jail. Why? Because, they said, Henry and Leon were guilty. They had been declared innocent by the governor of North Carolina, but the defense lawyers argued they were guilty. It was an absurd argument, 
But even so, it's not usually a good tactic to object to the other side's opening statement at trial. It generally doesn't go down well with a jury. But Liz was determined, and as Des explains, she encouraged him to go with his instinct. I screwed up the courage and stood up and objected to the first mention of our guys being guilty. And I held my breath because I didn't know what Judge Boyle was going to do. But thank goodness Judge Boyle had been waiting for this moment. And he had sustained our objection and turned to the jury and explained in detail that the governor of the state of North Carolina had found our clients absolutely innocent, had pardoned them, and that any suggestion that our, that our clients were guilty of this crime would be improper for the jury to consider. But the defense kept going. Three more times during the opening, defense lawyers tried to say that Henry and Leon were actually guilty. Each time, Des stood up and objected. And each time, Judge Boyle agreed with Des and sustained the objection. But I actually think what Judge Boyle was expressing to the jury and to those in the court was frustration that the defense was trying to put on a sideshow that was demonstrably wrong, that instead of defending the case on the merits of the case, they were trying to suggest without any basis whatsoever that our clients were guilty of these crimes. Back before the trial had started, Des had gone to the scene of Sabrina Bowie's murder and stood at the edge of the soybean field where she'd been found. He likes to get a sense of the place he is talking about during a trial, and this case was no different. But the sight of a city lawyer in that part of Red Springs immediately attracted attention, as he explains. Within five minutes, no less than three cars stopped, and the driver said to me, are you lost? You know, do you belong in this part of town? It's really because I think the communities are entirely segregated, and a white guy in a suit standing there is not some, is just in reality in that town still to this day is not something that, that's regularly seen. That visit and learning the geography of the place came to play an important part in the trial. One of the key pieces of evidence was to demonstrate how close Sabrina Bowie's body was to the house of Roscoe Artis, that serial rapist who murdered another young woman a month after he killed Sabrina. Her body was found 36 feet, 9 inches from his backyard. And I had seen the police reports and read that in, in black and white, and there was a little map that was hand-drawn that showed that, and it looked, you know, relatively close. But in preparing for trial, I went down to the crime scene and stood there and stood where her body was, and it was astonishingly close to his backyard. So Des took out a tape measure and gave one end to the witness on the stand and walked across the courtroom until he'd measured out 36 feet, 9 inches. Then he turned and started walking slowly back toward the witness. I walked back to him, and he counted out loud 14 steps it took me to get there. Then in closing, I was able to argue that her body was found 14 steps away from the backyard of a serial rapist and murderer, and the police never once looked at him as somebody who should be looked at 
for the crime. And I think it really stuck with the jury, that visualization of really how close that was. And importantly, we also told the jury of the motives of the police, that even after they discovered that Roscoe Artis, the real killer, was next door and his DNA was at the crime scene, they continued to try to pin this crime on Henry and Leon and say that they were guilty and that Roscoe Artis was innocent. Those officers didn't investigate Roscoe Artis for the murder of Sabrina Bowie because they wanted to save themselves and their careers. It was completely improper the way that they interviewed those two boys. And had it come to light that these were truly false confessions and what law enforcement did in there was completely inappropriate, you know, it would have been very bad for their reputations, bad for their careers. And so their failure to investigate Roscoe Artis and their suppression of other evidence, um, keeping it back from Henry and Leon's attorneys, was part of a cover-up. The trial team kept reminding the jury throughout the trial that this cover-up meant that Henry and Leon had spent 31 years wrongfully imprisoned. Their young lives had been stolen, and their lives mattered. The focus of our case was what went on with Henry and Leon and the 30 years of cover-up by the police. But certainly there were other issues that came into the trial, facts about Henry and Leon living in the public housing area of Red Springs on the other side of the tracks from the young, relatively affluent white girl who initially pointed her finger at Henry and then recanted. We did feel like it was important in this trial that the truth come out about the way the police interacted with Henry and Leon because of who they were, young, poor, intellectually disabled African-American teenagers, as opposed to how they treated others in that town. It was up to Liz to explain life on death row and help the jury understand what kind of experience Henry and Leon had in a cell the size of a parking spot. Both Henry and Leon had significant stays in solitary confinement. That's the type of incarceration where for 23 hours a day, at least 23 hours every day, you're in a cell alone with no interaction with any other human being whatsoever. The cells are designed to inflict psychological torture and they were both placed in these solitary confinement facilities on multiple occasions. Leon, unfortunately, had a very difficult time. Some of the most compelling testimony came from Henry and Leon themselves. Our co-counsel, Elliot Abrams, took the lead on getting both of them ready to testify. Elliot spent countless hours with Leon and Henry to earn their trust and prepare them emotionally to take the stand. It was difficult for the brothers to talk about their time in prison. Everyone on the trial team was profoundly moved by their incredible bravery. Leon says as hard as it was, it was also really important to him to do it. Well, yeah, the moment that really sticked out to me was when I got to take the stand and tell my story. It was like an inspiration to me, you know, the feeling that I felt being able to let the jury know exactly what happened. Henry had spent all 31 years of his incarceration on death row. Separated from the rest of the prison, he and the other men on death row became close. 
Over those years, Henry saw 42 of those men taken away and executed. And after each one was executed, Henry would often become suicidal. He testified at trial about the first time that this happened in 1988, and it was a friend he had become particularly close with. In North Carolina, they actually execute people in the same building where death row is housed. So he watched his friend basically walk down the stairs at Central Prison to be executed. And he remembers after the execution, they brought his body out on a gurney and he could see his friend's arms hanging out the side of the sheet that was covering him. And he, he as he testified at trial, seeing that and knowing that, you know, one day it was going to be him uh, and that it was for a crime he didn't commit was too much to bear. Liz has represented many people on death row, but she says it was not until this case that she presented to a jury in great detail what a lengthy incarceration on death row looks like and the toll it can take on a person. Death rows are designed to dehumanize people, mostly men, and to make them believe every day that they are not worthy of, of anything, really. Liz questioned a death row psychologist on the witness stand who had helped Henry and Leon prepare for life outside the prison. And Henry asked things like, what will it feel like when it rains? Because he had not felt the rain in 30 plus years. They were not ever allowed to go outside when it was raining. Henry didn't know how to put on a seatbelt, didn't know how to tie a tie, didn't know how to cook for himself, didn't know how to use a computer, Google, anything. On the morning of the last day of trial, the lawyers had some exciting news to share with their clients. They had secured a $9 million settlement with one of the two defendants from the Robeson County Sheriff's Office, a significant amount of money and payable immediately. Liz explains what happened next. And when we sat in this small room in the back of the courthouse, our small attorney room, with our core team to share this news with Henry and Leanne, I think we were all struck by the lack of excitement, really, that we saw, which we did not expect. And in fact, both Henry and Leanne were sort of silent. The team realized that more than money, Henry and Leon needed the jury to say, we believe you. We believe you. We believe that your confession was false. We believe that it was coerced by these law enforcement officers. We believe that you had nothing to do with this crime. And we believe that you were wrongfully incarcerated for 30 plus years and deserve some justice. But there was no guarantee that Henry and Leon would get any justice at all. The jury would need to unanimously agree that the brothers had been terribly wronged and unanimously agree to compensate them for those wrongs. When Judge Boyle sent the jury out to deliberate, the long wait began. David worried about the toll it was taking on Henry and Leon. Henry told him not to worry. He was used to a quick guilty verdict, so maybe it was worth the wait this time. Finally, Judge Boyle called everyone back to the courtroom and methodically went through the verdict form, reading out each line. 
is this defendant liable to Henry? Is this defendant liable to Leon? And the answers kept coming back, yes. And then they started talking about money and how much money. And and I was writing it all down and trying to add it up. And Liz gasps out loud, like, with an, oh, my God. The jury awarded $31 million in compensatory damages for each of our clients, and then $13 million in punitive damages. $75 million for Henry and Leon. I turn to Dave and Maxwell, who's sitting next to me, and I say, am I doing this right? Did he just say $75 million? Does this add up to $75 million? And David's like, yeah, I think so. But I, I don't know that I can really do math right now. It was the largest wrongful conviction verdict in American history. And it wasn't about the money. It was about the vindication. It was about the fact for Henry and Leon that this jury had heard their case, taken them seriously, heard their stories, heard the police lie, and came back and said, not only are you innocent, but you were wronged in terrible ways, and we believe in you. When we finally did get that verdict, um, that's when we saw for the first time the pure elation and joy on Henry and Leon's face as we circled up together as a team with our arms on each other's shoulders, um, I think with tears in all of our eyes because we knew that we had finally gotten them exactly what they had wanted throughout the course of this case. I feel real good, man, for real. I thought we had won our case, man, you know, and got the point across to the jury. You know, I thought they saw our side, man, and realized that we really was mistreated and done wrong that night underage while being questioned. The verdict left the entire trial team stunned and overjoyed. So much hard work, so many hours, and so much emotional investment had gone into preparing and trying the case. I remember after, you know, we had sort of packed up all of our stuff and we're walking out of court. It was the whole team, you know, carrying boxes of uh, documents and exhibits and supplies, lugging it all to these cars. And I remember looking at the whole group and just being amazed at what we had accomplished. They'd been a close-knit team, and they'd learned a lot from each other over an intense time. Liz was inspired by the way Des devoted himself to this case. He's represented um, a number of people who've been exonerated under his watch. His emotional commitment to our client's cause, um, his drive to do whatever it takes to get them the best result. Those are qualities that he has found a way to pass on to the team in almost a seamless fashion. For Des, there was another reason the win was emotional. This case also, from a personal level, I think means a great deal to me. I My children are biracial and they're teenagers and I think about them and their friends and think about the fact that the color of their skin and the color of the skin of millions of people in this country can affect whether they are treated justly and fairly. And from a personal perspective, I'm really just happy to be able to have been part of a case that may have cascading consequences for others. It's a hard-fought victory for the trial team. 
but it means a lot to all of us at this firm. Tom Connolly leads litigation for the Americas at Hogan Lovells. For decades, Hogan Lovells has stood up against injustice. From representing the Black Panthers in the 1970s, to fighting for justice in Tulia, to winning freedom for the Norfolk Four, we value our pro bono department perhaps more than any other firm in the world. For Henry and Leon, the verdict and the compensation gives them the chance to move forward with their lives, to enjoy the freedom they deserve. For Henry, it's the little things. It feels wonderful. It feels wonderful where I could be able to walk, walk out of my house or walk down the street, take a walk around in the neighborhood or walk to that store that's only like a mile away from where I stay. It feels good to breathe this air out here. And for Leon, it's being able to move past that long and terrible dark time in his life. You know, I just wanted to thank God, you know, <laughs> for working with y'all and getting the truth out. You know, the truth had come out. It revealed itself. You know, they said, what's in the darkness will come to the light. You can't keep it here forever. It's going to come out eventually. And they couldn't keep it here. What they had done to us, they couldn't keep it here. It was going to come out eventually. And God saw fit for that. That the truth come out, they couldn't keep it here. You can find more information about our premier trial team at HoganLovels.com. I hope you'll join us for the next episode of Proof in Trial. Until next time, I'm Kate Stetson, and thank you for listening.